Well, this morning we are continuing with week two of our new series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And Won't You Be My Neighbor is this three-week discovery into how God has called and equipped us into intentionally living out the mission of God's kingdom into our neighborhoods so that we may see it next door as it is in heaven. Now, throughout time, the church actually has been a neighboring movement. And if you were with uh, the living room class as we explored early church history, you would have seen some examples of this. It was uh, not uncommon for the early church to identify a specific place or neighborhood to be present in uh, for a sense of mission. And we see that with Julian IV. He's this emperor. He's uh, the uh, nephew of Constantine. And he thought Constantine had driven the nation into uh, a really unhealthy place with his acceptance of Christianity. And so he begins to try to uh, oppress and persecute uh, early Christians. And what he had found as he looked at them is that they had moved themselves into the neighborhoods that needed it the most. And What he was finding is that Christians actually had moved into the neighborhood to care for victims of the plague. During the time of uh, Julian, the emperor, he found that a lot of trouble was beginning to stir, and, and including the plague. And as he looked at those things, he said it must be the Christians that are to blame. And so as he persecuted them, he found that his own priests were upset Uh, with the plague victims, and so they were leaving the town at all costs. And so what happened is the Christians saw the void, moved in, and began to care and love on their neighbors, and so much so that it said that two-thirds of everyone that the Christians were caring for survived the plague, uh, both through the spirit and also general nursing practices. And so Julian IV begins to look at this, and he says, these people are to blame, but at the same time, they've moved themselves into our neighborhoods and become so integral to our neighborhoods that we must stop them and replace the work they are doing. And so he writes to his priest and he tells them that I don't know by what means these pious Christians think they're doing this, but at all costs you must do what they're doing. And he said that the way that we were inviting the plague victims to our love feast or what we now call communion was the same as how slave traders would give candy to kids and lure them away onto a ship. So he told his priest, you pagan priests need to move into the neighborhood and be as important in the neighborhood as the church is, or I'll have your head. The church has long been a neighboring movement. And as I said last week, obviously most of us can't even begin to think about neighborhood life without talking about Mr. Rogers' television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In the opening for his show, Mr. Rogers would sing, I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Now, I think in this changing and crazy world of unrest in which we live and breathe and play, most of us would deeply love to have more meaningful neighborhood and community relationships. In this song, I think there's a bit of a prophetic realization, and and in it he says, since we are together, we might as well say. To me, the prophetic idea is that we see here that we realize what it means to be in a moment and in a place, and what it means to make the most use of it. The same way the early church 
did. Mr. Rogers used to invite his viewers into a land of make-believe, and I, I invited you there last week, and I'm going to invite you again there this week. And just imagine with me for a moment, what would happen if we as followers of Jesus, his church, would live in our neighborhoods in such an intentional and an invested way that those outside the church desired us as neighbors? What would happen if they could say, those Christians are the best neighbors any of us ever had? Folks, that's what we are hoping to discover through this series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And let me share one last tidbit with, about Mr. Rogers with you. Mr. Rogers was played by Fred Rogers, a Presbyterian minister. And in an interview, he once said, We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond, and I consider those people my heroes. I want us to explore what it means to be a good neighbor for the sake of the kingdom of God as a neighborhood hero. And ones that we find contagious ways that we as followers of Jesus can live out this neighborhood life. I don't actually think becoming neighborhood heroes is just a lofty idea or something that uh, is a practical idea. As we explored last week, I also think it's a kingdom idea. It's a kingdom value. And last week we began the series with a look at what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. We explored this greatest commandment. And we explored it through the lens of it being actually a purposeful plan of the kingdom, a strategic direction for the sake of the kingdom. And we looked at what Jesus really implied and meant when he quoted both at Deuteronomy, Shira prayer, but also the, the Deuteronomy law and the Leviticus law there. This morning we explore the ways that purposeful plans should motivate us to be neighborhood heroes in a purposeful place. So last week was a purposeful plan, and this week we're going to be looking at what it means to find purpose in the neighborhood or the sphere of influence in which you live. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood wasn't the only famous neighborhood uh, relationship that was portrayed on television. Primetime television has actually long explored the relationship between neighbors and uh, families. You have people who have made good neighbors even though they had crazy and no... Let me say that again. You have had people who have had to make good neighborhood relationships even though they've had some of the nosiest, the craziest or goofiest neighbors on TV. Some of you would remember Urkel from the show Family Matters, this young neighbor who would sneak over into the house and just kind of break things and was kind of clumsy. If you remember the show in the 90s, Full House, you had Kimberly, who was a a daughter's friend and lived next door and would just make herself at home and eat out the family's fridge. If you remember the show Alf, which was one of my favorite growing up, you had the nosy neighbor, Miss uh, Amachek, if I remember right. And going back further, you had Mr. Ed, the talking horse, and Roger Addison as the neighbor there. Other shows have uh, portrayed what happens when we depend on our neighbors. If you remember the show Friends, this was a weird relationship of friends that lived in an apartment building together and found their lives dependent and intermixed on each other. And then there was also the show Home Improvement. Now, if you remember watching that, that was my parents' favorite show growing up. And there was a neighbor named Mr. Wilson. And you never knew Mr. Wilson, but uh, the main character, Tim, depended on a relationship with him a lot. Then there was everyone's favorite neighbor, 
Dennis the Menace. I'm not sure what kind of neighbor you have this morning, but I believe the passage in which we are going to be exploring today begins to help us discover purpose in the place of where we live and where we are placed, regardless if we have Dennis the Menace or if we have a great sense of neighborhood like the show Friends. There are many places in the Bible in which we find uh, God has led his people to be incarnational in a purposeful place with a purposeful plan. In fact, recently in our shipwreck series, we looked at how Paul intentionally was led to make home for two years in a Roman neighborhood and became invested in his neighborhood there. We could talk about how God led Jonah to Nineveh and many others. This morning we're going to talk about what we can learn about neighboring from Jeremiah 29, 4-14. Now just as a really brief background into this passage, what we see happening here is for years Jeremiah has been warning uh, the northern Judah uh, kingdom, that this northern part of Jerusalem, guys, you need to be careful what you're doing. You need to watch what you're doing. You need to fix your actions. You need to watch those people that are hanging out with the outsiders. And instead, no one listens to him. So this weird political uh, scheme is happening just back then like it is today. And kings are kind of trading empires around and Babylon decides that they want the northern kingdom of Judah. So they come in and they lay Judah, this northern kingdom of Jerusalem, to rest, to to waste. There is nothing left. And while they didn't take everyone into captivity, they took the majority of the city with them back into captivity, back into Babylon. And for 70 years, God's people from the northern kingdom of Judah had to live in a place they didn't want to be. They had to live in a neighborhood that they once have chosen. It wasn't the retirement they were working towards. And that's where we are going to pick up the passage this morning in Jeremiah 29, 4-14. God begins to talk to his people as they are in exile. You can follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible. Jeremiah 29, 4-14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those that I've carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now notice, let me just point out, Babylon's playing a political game. They took over the northern kingdom, but God here takes credit for their exile. God says that I have actually been the one that moved you from that neighborhood to that neighborhood. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too will have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yet this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. 
I will gather you from all of the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, I think there's a few notes that we can take away from this passage. This place where God has put his people in a neighborhood they would not have chosen to be, not a place that they wanted to be. Now, many of us also probably don't always live in the neighborhood we would like to uh, be in. I don't know about you, but I often dream what it would be like to live um, at the beach in a neighborhood that is right on the sand. Can anyone say they've had that dream, right? Or maybe for you, it's what would it be like to live in a neighborhood in the mountains? Or what would it be nice if we could just live in that gated community where people don't bother us? We all have this ideal neighborhood in which we want to live in, and then we have the neighborhood in which we actually do live in. Sometimes we lose sight of the neighborhood that we actually do live in because we are so distracted by the neighborhood, working for the neighborhood we do want to live in. And this morning as we look at Jeremiah 29, I think there's a few notes that we can take away that helps us find purpose in the current place we are, if it's ideal or not. First thing we see is Israel was not living in a place that they would have chosen for themselves. But even in that neighborhood, God showed them that he had a purposeful plan and a purposeful place. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think the Jewish people really enjoyed being led into exile. They didn't really want to be there. It's like when you're stuck at a retirement party for somebody at work that you don't really enjoy, but you're there. They weren't really where they wanted to be. Some of them had worked their whole life for something better. They, had, they thought they had deserved more. Where was this RV trip across the country that they should be experiencing? Where was their beach house on the sand or their cabin in the mountains? Instead, God had seemingly put them in this cold, dark prison sentence for 70 years. However, as they sat in their exile, this one that they would have not chosen for themselves, God informed them that he had both instructions and a purpose for them being there. The first thing that he told them as they were in exile was the plant where they were placed. They were called to plant where they were placed. They were to plant themselves and their families by building homes. They were to settle down in their homes by planting gardens and eating what it grew. Now, in some way, God was telling his people to deal with the, the cards that they had been dealt. They didn't get the dream of living in a gated community, the beachfront resort town. He, in fact, asked them to act as if they were permanent residents in a place they didn't want to be. They were told to build houses. They were told to plant gardens. And they were told to eat what their gardens grow. Now, the shocking part of that is these Jewish people thought Babylon was this crazy, worldly, sinful place, this place that was dirty just by even mentioning the name, nevertheless touching the ground. And here, God tells them to dig their houses into the ground, to permanently root themselves in the ground, to plant food into this dirty soil that they didn't even think was worthy of their touch, and to eat what the ground produced. That would have not been received well by these people in exile. The next thing we see is that God told them that his purposeful plan for this place, this neighborhood life, included fruitfully multiplying. God's people should get married, have kids, enjoy marriage, and have kids of their own. They are to produce an increase. God tells them to produce an increase. 
Get married, have kids, let your kids get married so that they can have kids. Make yourself permanently generations deep in this space. They aren't supposed to just exist in this neighborhood. You know, if you're in a place that you don't really want to be, you're usually just trying to buy time to get out of it. God didn't want them just in the neighborhood buying time to get out of this space. He wanted them to make babies. At all costs, they were to actually increase their influence and their presence by increasing their numbers. The next thing we see is God informs them that their prosperity depends on the city's prosperity. They are instructed to both intentionally invest and involve themselves and pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city. Now, there are two ideas that are presented here. And it's in this verse 7 that I'm referring to. And God tells them, And also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The two ideas that we see there is that they are actually supposed to seek. That is an action word. If you would look at that word in its Hebrew, it is an action word in which they are actually supposed to roll up their sleeves and get busy in the neighborhood. Now, if you saw the newspaper article, one of the things that I talked about in there is when I polled my neighbors of what they thought of our church, they didn't see us as people that were actually involved in the neighborhood. They saw us as people who just uh, use a space, they inhabit a space in the neighborhood for a short time, and then they vacate the neighborhood. They don't see us as neighbors. But here, the first thing God tells his community, his people, the northern kingdom, Jews that are in exile, he says the first thing you are to do is to roll up your sleeves and to seek the peace and the prosperity of this dark and oppressive place that I've put you that you don't want to be. Now that is a really hard thing for them to understand. In fact, he says that unless the city prospers, you yourself as my people won't prosper. Unless you find ways to make those horrible, pagan, uh, worldly people experience peace and prosperity, then you, my people, won't experience peace and prosperity. The second thing he tells them, after he tells them to roll up their sleeves and to work for it, he tells them that they are to pray for the peace and the prosperity. Now, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, find it really easy to pray about things. We, we will always say, yes, we will remember you in prayer. We will pray for our neighborhood. But here, prayer doesn't precede action in God's command. Action precedes prayer. Do you notice that? Often we start with prayer and stop with prayer. But in this command, this instruction on how to live in the neighborhood, it's first that they are to seek it. The next thing we see is that God informs them that their prosperity depends on the city's prosperity Oh, I just said that, sorry. They are not to pay attention to those distracting them from this place. Prophets and diviners among them fed them what they wanted to hear about the future, distracting them from following God's command in the present. In their community, in exile with them, were some of their same prophets that they had brought with them, that were forced with them into captivity. These would have been people who were supposed to hear the heart of God and call them back to it. Jeremiah was the lonely weeping prophet because he was the only prophet willing to tell the people what they really needed to hear. All the other prophets and diviners uh, were telling the people what they wanted to hear. And that doesn't change as we see it go into captivity. 
And what happens here is God tells them, you need to be careful with who you're listening to because you are encouraging them to have dreams. In other words, the people are only feeding you what they know you want them to hear. You are distracting yourself with these people who are focused on the future. The role of a prophet isn't only to call people back to the heart of God, but to point to the coming promises of God. And in this text, we see that the prophets and the diviners most likely were so distracted by the future and the promises of what's yet to come that they were keeping the people from actually planting where they were placed. Unfortunately, these guys were saying, don't worry, the 70 years will go quick. Don't worry, it won't last that long. Hey, we can have an uprising over here. And then they'd even begun to mess with these diviners, these people who, who thought they could talk to the dead, and, and they would try to do spells to hear what was coming down the future. And God says to them, be careful not to pay attention to those distracting you from this place, this place I have put you. Prophets and diviners among them were feeding what they wanted to hear about the future and distracted them from following God's commands in the present. The next thing we see is that God lets his promise speak for himself. He promises he's going to come back for them. Don't worry. I know those other guys are promising you things, but I promise you I will come back in 70 years. And, but the plans he has for them in this place are to actually for a prospering hope and not a harm to them. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11, we love to use as Christians and as God's people. For years, this is a statement that we have held before our lives for various things. And, and in context, that is what, this is what this verse says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the part we like to quote. And declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. In the beginning of this passage... Who led them into exile? God. So God's plan for them involved them being where? In exile, in this neighborhood they didn't want to be. His plans to prosper them and not harm them start here. They are to discover what it means to be present with where he's placed them in such a way that they will grow into the things that God has planned for them. But to get to that part, to get to the good things that are coming down the pipeline, they first have to prove faithful with what he's taught them. It's after they learn to neighbor in this purposeful place, with God's purposeful plan, that they will find God and his reconciling presence when they seek him with all of their heart. In fact, not only will they receive God's blessing, but they will actually hear the voice of God. Did you notice when we read the passage, God says, it is then, after these 70 years that you work through this, that when you call on me, I will answer. In other words, for the next 70 years, till you figure this out, I'm going to be quiet. You get my voice back when you get this right. That's an important piece for me. This morning, I think this passage invites us to discover neighborhood life in a few new ways. Our purposeful plan for the kingdom is to love God with all of our hearts in such a way that it pours out into all those around us in contagious ways and the ways that we love our neighbors, both in our neighborhood and our spheres of influence. 
And this passage teaches us that God calls us to not only live out that purposeful plan, but at times he calls us to live out that purposeful plan in a purposeful place, in the place in which we actually are, the place where he has led us. Look, and these are those invitations that I hear in this passage. Look at where you are as a place where God has put you with purpose. Ask him to give you a purposeful plan for your neighborhood. Now, you may not be in a place that you've chosen for yourself. Like me, you may find yourself daydreaming of the beach. You may be in a community that you wouldn't want to live in. You may be living in a retirement community. But wherever you are, look at where you are. Begin to look at it through the lens of that God has you there where you are for a purpose. Ask him to give you a purposeful plan in your neighborhood. Dear God, you know I don't like it here. I hate winter, but give me a purpose for where I'm at. That's where it starts. The next thing I see is instead of lamenting about where you are or where you aren't, find yourself desiring to plant in the place you live. Building homes are a permanent idea. How can you get yourself involved with where you are at for the long haul? Gardens take elbow grease. They also mean getting dirty in the garden around you, which was offensive to them. What things do you turn your noses up around you in your neighborhood or in your spheres of influence that actually you might be able to hear God inviting you to explore or to listen in in or to learn about him in new ways? We cannot neighbor to we love and face the place in which God has actually planted us. We cannot neighbor until we learn to love and face the place in which God has actually planted us. We are called to discover what it means to be fruitful and to multiply in your neighborhood. God commanded his people to produce an increase. For some, this means family, but it didn't stop, start or stop with that. What does it mean for you to produce an increase around you? Maybe it's spiritual parenting. Maybe it's adopting somebody from the neighborhood. Last week, I told you about 50% of the world sees a church as an unhelpful presence in the world. Also, two-thirds of followers of Jesus live in non-neighborhood rural settings. And so our neighborhoods in the suburbs are feeling this loss of Christianity. And I, I said this statement that I think why we see a decline in suburban life, and you can look at the statistics, there's been an increasing amount of uh, crimes and, and disconnectedness. In fact, uh, what was it, 46% of people say they can't even trust their neighbor in the suburbs. The reason we are seeing this is because we as followers of Jesus are not living out the purposeful plan in purposeful places. And so I think our neighborhoods are suffering as a result of that. Neighboring in a purposeful place where the purposeful plan requires us to think like our own prosperity depends on the neighborhoods. If we want people to see us as people that truly love them and know them, if we want to see people as, uh, for, uh, for people to see us as people that we can trust, it's going to mean getting involved. And one of the ways that we can do that is begin to adopt this mindset that God introduces to his people. Unless the town prospers of where I have placed you, or unless you pray for its prosperity, you yourself will not prosper. If we want to prosper as a church, as individuals, what if the formula to it is working for the prosperity of others? This changes the mindset on how we invest for retirement and for a better life. Do not get distracted by what you want to hear in life. 
or what is to come into the future. God invites us to discover our purpose in our present place. Don't just look forward to what's coming. Don't look forward to your retirement. Don't look forward to heaven. Deal with where God's presence is in the neighborhood already. For these are the plans that I have for you. Build homes. Make yourself present. And as Scott and the worship team come forward, I leave you with this last invitation. Like for his people in exile, God has promises for us as individuals and as a church. We discover those plans and promises by being presently faithful in the place we are. So my main challenge for you this morning, as you look at where you live, as you look at where you play, as you work, you, where you work, look at your neighborhood as a place in which God has given you as a place to be present and ask him how you can be faithful in it, how you can roll up your sleeves and totally work for the prosperity and the peace of that area.